Multiple births should not be confused with entertainment, nor should they be an opportunity to sell products. Our lives have been ruined by the exploitation we suffered at the hands of the government of Ontario, our place of birth. We were displayed as a curiosity three times a day for millions of tourists. To this day, we receive letters from all over the world. And to all of those who have expressed their support in light of the abuse we have endured, we say thank you. And to those who would seek to exploit the growing fame of children, we say beware. Welcome to Femacab, a podcast about life's mysteries, oddities, and of course, the, the macabre. macabre. Hosted by Stephanie Malosh and Aaron Benz. The statement you heard at the beginning of this episode was excerpted from an open letter that Annette, Cecile, and Yvonne Dion wrote to the parents of the McCoy septuplets in 1997. Annette, Cecile, and Yvonne were the remaining Dion quintuplets. Their sisters, Amy Lee and Marie, passed away in 1954 and 1970, respectively. Yvonne passed away in 2001, not long after this open letter was published in The Times. Annette and Cecile are currently 85 years old. So Steph, you're from Ontario. Have you ever heard of the Dion Quintuplets? Absolutely. I think we covered them in one of my family like sociology classes in high school, like relationship health class, but it was all about like abuse and like emotional health and stuff like that. Interesting. Since I started writing the script for this episode, I've been asking Canadians when I run into them here in Dublin if they had heard about them. And so far, not a single person that I've asked has heard of the Dion Quintuplet, (laughs) which to me is absolutely insane, considering that the Dion Quintuplets were in the 1930s and the beginning of the 1940s, a bigger tourist attraction than Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon. Yeah, and not to mention, I'm pretty sure there's like a musical or a play about them. There's been a couple like made-for-TV movies that I know for sure. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. And they also starred in movies. I actually hadn't heard of the Dion Quintuplets until about just over a year ago. I grew up in Alberta, so we didn't learn as much Ontario history as you guys would have. But I found this story absolutely fascinating. And hopefully I can tell you some things that you've not heard about in relation to the Dion quintuplets. Sounds good to me. Tell me about it. Nineteen thirty four. Two midwives, one doctor, five infant girls, two months premature. 13 pounds, 6 ounces between all five babies. The Dion quintuplets were born in a small farmhouse near the towns of Corbet and Calendar, Ontario, to French-Canadian Roman Catholic parents, Elzir and Oliva Dion. It wasn't easy to be French-Canadian and Roman Catholic in Ontario in the 1930s. To then give birth to five babies with a collective weight under 14 pounds and have already five other children to look after was more or less impossible. Whoa. Right? It's a lot. So now, there's a common misconception that the Dion's were poor. Oliva Dion was in fact one of the only two men in Calendar to own a car. The local priest was the other vehicle owner, and later, a man bought a car and ran a taxi company. 
Oliva Dion was known to work hard to support his family and even mortgage their house to avoid taking government handouts during the Depression. The Dions were struggling. Who wouldn't when your family suddenly grows from 7 to <laughs> to 12 overnight? So they were struggling, but many people in Calendor and Crebet were struggling more. The towns had a 70% unemployment rate when the quintuplets were born during the Great Depression. However, when Elzira Dion went into labor on May 28, 1934, she expected to deliver twins. She did not expect to deliver five premature girls and find herself in desperate need of medical attention. The birth was attended by two midwives, Donalda Legro and Mary Jean LaBelle, and Dr. Alan Roydefoe later came to the house to assist Elzira with the last two births. She had become too weak to push, so while the midwives breathed air into the other baby's lungs and rubbed them with warm olive oil to keep their body temperature up, Defoe himself pulled the last two babies from their mother. The modest farmhouse now held the Dion's five other children, Elzir and Oliva, the two midwives, Dr. Defoe, and the five Dion quintuplets. Oh my gosh. This was like a maybe three-room house. It was pretty small. And... Do you mean like they all lived there together, including the midwives and the doctor? The midwives and the doctor didn't live there, but they stayed there for quite a while. Oh, man. (laughs) The babies were so tiny that each one could be held cupped in one hand. (gasps) They were fed like you might feed a kitten that's been separated from its mother from an eyedropper. And they were fed a mixture of milk corn syrup, and water because their mother had never been successful at breastfeeding, and then soon donations of breast milk started pouring in from as far as Toronto. Oh wow, that's so nice. The girls slept in a basket by the open stove the first few nights of their lives. The midwives let them suck rum from their fingers to stimulate them. Two incubators were donated by a hospital. The local newspapers quickly learned of the births, and people in the nearby towns quickly fell in love with the girls, seeing them as a beacon of hope amidst the Great Depression. The local newspapers began publishing daily updates on the girls, who had gained or lost an ounce, what they were eating, etc. It was quickly becoming apparent that the family home would not be able to accommodate the team of nurses and the equipment necessary to care for the babies. Oliva Dion was approached by the Chicago World Fair within days of the birth about exhibiting the girls, and he actually ended up signing a contract on the advice of the family priest, Father Daniel Rotier. Oh. I read in some places that Dr. Defoe also advised, advised him to sign the contract, but I'm not sure. The priest wanted a cut of the exhibition fees, having been Oliva Dion's advisor in these matters. Oh, man. So we're like three days post their birth, and... People are just coming out of the woodwork ready to exploit these babies. Oh, that's also skeezy. They just all wanted in on the money. So the Dion quintuplets were the first set of identical quintuplets to survive. And one thing I always kind of thought about when I was thinking about quintuplets or even twins is how would you tell them apart when they're so tiny and there's so much stress happening right after birth? So they were named in order of how big they were. So they were lined up in order of their size. And the nurses and the family tried to be really careful about remembering to only pick up one at a time and put it back in the same spot so they remembered who's who. And one of the nurses later admitted that 
one time she wasn't entirely sure that she put the right sister in the right spot. (laughs) Which I find, like, there's a little bit of, there's a few little instances of humor in what is otherwise a devastating story. A really dark story. Yeah. So, Alivadian attempted to revoke the contract on the grounds that his wife had not signed it, and basically on the fact that as soon as he signed this contract, the media went crazy and were berating him and were berating his wife, Elzir, and just saying, like, they're unfit parents, they shouldn't have children. Um, and all that because they wanted to cash in. Yeah. I mean... And I mean, I can see where Oliva was coming from because he suddenly had 10 children and had no idea how he was going to pay for taking care of them. Absolutely. The girls obviously needed incubators and a medical staff. And, like, this was in the middle of the Great Depression. Nobody had any money. Mm -hmm. So later he said that he was just trying to figure out how to support his family. So I get that. Yeah. Today it seems like such an easy thing to do to just, like, cash in on your kids. Like, you see all the celebrities doing it, making, like, Instagram accounts for their children or just, like... Oh, my God, yeah. I can see I can see how people were, like, outraged back then because it just wasn't so commonplace. Yeah, people were absolutely outraged. And eventually how they got out of the contract because the Chicago Tour Bureau would not back down. They were like, this is our right. Mm -hmm. These girls have to be displayed at the World's Fair. And in order to void the contract, the Dion's ended up signing over custody of their five infant daughters to the Red Cross for the next two years. What does that even mean? Basically, the government and the doctors stepped in and were like, in order for this contract, and it did void the contract, but they were like, the only way yeah. this contract can be voided is if we declare you unfit parents and take the children away from you, then you don't have the parental oh. rights to sign this contract. Shit. So basically, they gave them up like to the foster system before there was a foster system. Yes, essentially. But I mean, of course, when you have five quintuplets that can bring in a lot of cash for the Ontario government, they're not going to get treated like other kids who've been given up for adoption or put into the foster system. So so I see. So the Ontario government was like, let us take this burden off your hands. We'll cover all the costs for everything. But in the back of their heads, they're like, now we can cash in on, on these five kids. Oh, absolutely. So Uh, that's sickening. By signing custody over to the Red Cross and the Ontario government, the Dion's were promised that for the next two years, all of the nurses, all the medical expenses, the doctor's visit would be paid for the Red Cross. And a hospital was built close to the Dion house. It was like essentially across the road called the (laughs) Defoe Hospital and Nursery, named for the doctor that claimed to have saved the girls, even though he just kind of stepped in at the last minute and delivered the last two. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's important to note that Dr. Defoe is English Protestant and the Dion's were French Catholic. The towns of Calendar and Curbet had both French and English-speaking families, but Ontario was certainly predominantly English-speaking compared to Quebec, where Oliva Dion was originally from. Mm. And to paraphrase Natasha Wider, curator of the Calendar Bay Heritage Museum, one thing that you should know about Alan Defoe is that in 25 years of treating a fairly equal mix of French and Canadian patients. 
he'd never bothered to learn a word of French. Mm, Typical. He also allegedly used a very derogatory name for French people to refer to the girls as soon as he left their house when he was talking to friends in Calendar about their miraculous birth. What did he call them? Essentially, he went into town and he was like, hey guys, I just delivered five little French frogs. I shouldn't laugh because I'm French, but also I just, it's like, yeah, it's derogatory, but I've never like understood like the, the total hate behind it. And I certainly think it had a lot more connotations in the 1930s. Oh yeah. The connotations back then. Yeah. Like that would not have gone over well. No. So needless to say, tensions were super high between Defoe and the Dion's, especially Oliva and Dr. Defoe. Because Dr. Defoe kind of saw himself as their savior and their surrogate father, even though they had their father straight across the road. That's disgusting. This tension would only grow as the girls grew. Mm-hmm. So in, in 1935, Elzira and Oliva traveled to Chicago to be presented as the parents of the world's most famous babies at the World's Fair. They did this because they were struggling to make ends meet. And all they had to do was kind of stand up on stage and be like, bonjour, we're the parents of the Dion quintuplets. And then they made bank. <laughs> so. Nice. However, this was not looked upon favorably in the media. And the premier of Ontario decided that this was grounds to extend the Red Cross's custody and eventually make the quintuplets wards of the crown under the Dion Quintuplets Act of 1935. Oh, geez. This was allegedly done to protect the girls from being taken advantage of by promoters, even though the same province of which they were wards created an enormous tourist industry around them. So even though they did the same thing in the end? They did the same thing in the end. And I, I honestly think that their intentions were all along to exploit the girls. Oh, absolutely. And of course they didn't see the, like the, the thing that, sticks out to me about this seizure of the girls by the Ontario government is that the Dion's had their five children that they'd had before the girls were born mm-hmm. and they went on to have two more children and the government didn't step in to take any of the other ones yeah the government was like no you're fine to parent these seven kids we just don't think you're good parents for your other kids So it was very selective. Yeah, it was just the quintuplets because they knew they could make mad bank on that. Yeah, it was very intentional. Ugh, gross. And so the Dion's, at this time, the general consensus was that the government and Dr. Defoe were doing the right thing. Yeah. The media saw the Dion's as uneducated, lowbrow, kind of like money-hungry people that were taking advantage of the government and just all these terrible things when they were on tour when they went to chicago papers would report oh they would report the worst thing so at one point elzir went dress shopping and a photographer followed her around and reported that the ugly dress in the window she was looking at would never fit her big ass body like that's (gasps) essentially what the newspapers were saying about her oh my gosh they would print exactly what the Dion's ate so they really loved orange soda and they didn't get it in calendar and so the newspaper would like make fun of them for drinking orange soda pop instead of champagne and 
they would print things like Elzir made a face at the taste of caviar. Look how unclassy she is. Uh, The media has not changed one bit since the 1930s, basically. No, it's like, it's all the terrible tabloid stuff. And then just imagine situating this, like, desperate family during the Depression in the middle of, like, this horrible media frenzy. And all, like, all they really want to do is be parents to their own kids, and they're not allowed to be. Wow. So... The Defoe Hospital and Nursery came to be called Quintland. So you can see where this is going. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was visited by over 3 million people between 1936 and 1943. Oh my goodness. The girls lived and played in the facility, and visitors would watch them go through their daily routines through one-way glass. No. Yes. That is so creepy. It's terrifying. Their own parents... Like, they're, they're, Dr. Defoe and the government were like, Oliva, Elzir, you can see your daughters whenever you want to, but they weren't allowed to bring their other children, they weren't allowed to bring friends and family, and they had to check in with guards at the gate in order to look at their children. That's whack. The girls had very few early memories of their parents. They said that they didn't understand what the words mother and father meant, because nobody had really taught them the meaning of them, and they didn't consider themselves <gasps> to have a mother and father until they were older. <gasps> that is absolutely heartbreaking. It's devastating. I couldn't imagine. It, that's, it's absolutely devastating. I couldn't imagine growing up and not even having like any like semblance of an idea of what the words mother and father could mean. Yeah, and I mean, it's also, it's so shocking because it's not like, They grew up in an orphanage. It's not like they didn't have parents. Their parents were literally across the street. They were across the street. That's so messed up. So Dr. Defoe and the team of like scientists and doctors surrounding them said that the girls didn't understand that they were being watched. They couldn't see. They couldn't hear. They were just normal kids. Of course, that wasn't true. The room wasn't soundproof. It was, like, very primitive, like, two-way glass. And at one point, it was just a screen. So the Mm -hmm. girls knew people were there. And they would actually respond as if they were performing for an audience. Yeah. And by the time their, like, three hours in front of people a day was up, they were physically and emotionally exhausted. Because they knew, they knew that these people, like, as toddlers, they knew that people were coming to see them. And they would perform. They would get up to antics. And their nurses said that seeing them play alone in their room was completely different to when they were in the playroom being observed. I mean, my children at my school do the same thing. They will act up for me and then people will come in to observe and they'll act a completely different way. Oh, yeah. It's children like it's such know. a natural child thing. It is. Like, even though they might not totally be aware of what's happening, like, children are so much, like... We need to give them so much more credit than what we give them now because they yeah. just they just know anyway, even though they don't truly know. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah, and the the doctors kind of thought that they were they basically viewed it as like the perfect experiment to see how child rearing could be. Oh, it's fucked up. <sighs> so I'll get back to that a little bit more. But for some perspective. This is how many people and how popular 
the Dion quintuplets as a tourist attraction was. I know they had a lot of celebrities come and visit them. That's all I remember from my history class. Yes. Among their visitors were Betty Davis, Jimmy Stewart, Clark Gable, Mae West, and Amelia Earhart, who saw them just six weeks before her infamous last flight. What? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Which for me is like... Did not see that one coming, honestly. No, and Amelia Earhart is like another aspect of history that absolutely fascinates me. So when I read about that weird little connection, my mind was just absolutely blown. That's also so strange to think about. It's like one of those things where you don't put two and two together about even existing in the same timeline or within the same time frame, just like how Martin Luther King and Anne Frank like are technically the same age because they were born the same year. And I'm like, how does that make sense? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. We I think we compartmentalize historical periods so much and then realizing that so many things are happening alongside each other sim- simultaneously is just so many things overlap. Yeah. So rights to the girls' likenesses, photographs, and names were sold to advertising companies and the Dion quintuplets became the most famous little girls in the world. In 1936, at Christmas, porcelain dolls of the girls outsold Shirley Temple dolls. Shirley Temple herself would beg her parents to, like, take her to play with the Dion quintuplets. Oh, my goodness. Did she ever get to meet the Dion quintuplets? I don't think she did. In 1939, the girls were presented to the King and Queen of England. What? And the King and Queen of England were absolutely enchanted by them because they'd been trained to talk to royalty. When the time came to actually meet the King and Queen, all five girls just kind of like jumped on them and hugged them and gave the King and Queen kisses. And the King and Queen were like, oh my God, these girls are so sweet. (laughs) They were probably trained to just like curtsy and like just stand there, right? (laughs) Because like you're definitely not allowed to jump on the Queen and cuddle her. They were trained to curtsy and introduce themselves in French and English and do nothing else. (laughs) And instead, they demanded cuddles and jumped on the king and queen. I mean... (laughs) Uh, That's hilarious. (laughs) So there's a six-lane highway that was built in northern Ontario to accommodate the tourists coming to see them. It's obviously not as busy anymore. They were a more popular tourist attraction than Niagara Falls. And they were used to advertise all sorts of things. So palm olive soap, Lysol products, Quaker Oats, Lifesavers candy, Carol corn syrup, Colgate dental cream, Carnation milk, and even more. Over 3 million people visited Quintland, netting the Ontario government upwards of $15 million in 1930s currency. What? And that's, that's only the money that the Ontario tourist industry got. There were five different Quintland souvenir shops in Calendar at the height of their popularity. One run by Oliva, Oliva Dion himself, which, I mean, if anybody's going to make a bank, he might as well. It should be the parents, yeah. Um, oh my goodness. The midwives that delivered them opened a store as well. <laughs> oh, So literally anybody from the town that was like, oh yeah, I know the Dions, they were just like, let's make money on the off of them oh absolutely people would rent out rooms in their house like I heard this one story of a family in calendar who rented out their kids bedrooms and made their kids sleep on the back porch (gasps) (laughs) right 
Just a very primitive Airbnb. <laughs> oh, it's, it's like this is the beginning of Airbnb where you're like, I don't really know what's going on here and I don't think I do want to know. No. Oh, my goodness. That's so another thing that I found really interesting is that people would sell fertility rocks. People were selling and distributing fertility rocks from the supposedly from the Dion property. (laughs) But because there were so many tourists, they eventually ran out of rocks. And every night, like, teenage boys in the town were paid to go down to the quarry and come, like, get truckloads of rocks and dump them there. So they were fake fertility rocks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. We ran out of rocks. You need to go find more. You need to go steal some from the quarry so we don't run out of rocks. Actually, though, oh like, my gosh, this story, like I've read, I've read three books about them, <laughs> and I've done, like I think I, I probably know more than most people about the Dion quintuplets, but like I still constantly come across things where I'm like, how is this real? How did this happen in like boring old Ontario during the Depression? But it's all real, and it's all absolutely insane. Absolutely insane. So, in addition to being put on display in a zoo-like environment, the girls then starred in three films based on fictional versions of their lives and Dr. Defoe's life, and numerous Ugh. newsreels and documentaries. And you can, you can watch the movies. They're on YouTube. So they starred in their own biopics, basically. <laughs> And of course, in the fictionalized versions of their lives, they were not the Dion quintuplets. They were the Wyatt quintuplets. So they were then... Anglicized. As you do in the 1930s. According to Catherine Arnup in the Journal of Canadian Studies, in the 1930s, there was a common belief among the medical professionals in Canada that, quote, maternal incompetence was the cause of high infant and maternal mortality rates, which led to, quote, men and women in the fields of medicine, child psychology, and social work intervening in an increasingly aggressive manner in the traditionally maternal domain of raising children. Arnup suggests that, quote, the birth of the quints offered an opportunity to establish a unique scientific laboratory with five genetically identical female subjects. Once guardianship had been secured, the experimental conditions were considered ideal. Not only were the Dion sisters' lives heavily structured for the benefit of the viewing public, but also for scientific observation and experimentation as a way to prove the alleged importance of scientific motherhood. So they were, they were like a sideshow and a medical experiment. That's doubly messed up. In 1943, guardianship of the quintuplets was returned to their parents and their family. So this was after a long battle with the government. Um, and now the family, which encompassed eight other children moved into a newly built 20-room mansion paid for by the money set aside for the quintuplets' future. Oh, my goodness. Quote, There was a total lack of communication in our home, which didn't make things any easier. Money, family rights, language, religion, politics, all of these issues provoked arguments and left a legacy of bitterness. I ached to know why my family were so unhappy. Only little by little did I figure out that the source of all these miseries was my own birth, which was said to be extraordinary, even miraculous, a label that marked me to the depths of my soul. That's heavy. It's so sad. That's a lot. 
Upon turning 18, all five girls left home and had limited contact with their parents and other siblings. Emily became a nun and died as a result of suffocation during an epileptic seizure at the age of 20 in 1954. Oh. The thing that breaks my heart the most about Emily's death is that she was never treated for her epilepsy. (gasps) She began to have seizures when she was 12, and I I started having seizures when I was 12, too. So this one... This one gets me. This one gets me in the feels. Hits close to home, yeah. So she started having seizures at the age of 12, and the first time she had a seizure, she was sharing a room with one of her sisters, and her sister, like, her sisters had no idea what was happening, and at this point, they had such a shattered relationship with their family that their instinct was to collect all five of the sisters in Emily's room instead of calling for their parents until later. Oh my goodness. So eventually they did call for their parents and their parents were like, oh, she's having a seizure and they didn't want to call a doctor because it was shameful to have a child with epilepsy. That's heartbreaking. So after everything that they've been through. Yeah. So they, the girls made a pact to never leave Emily alone and to look out for her because their parents wouldn't do anything and their parents actually threatened them because they didn't want the media finding out about the seizures, so they were never allowed to talk about it. If it's not bad enough, after the parents finally got the children back, the exhibiting and the media frenzy around them did not stop. And one of the worst... Like, to me, there's so many terrible parts of this story, but one that just, like, deeply, deeply unsettles me is that Oliva would have his male friends over and, like, display the girls to them and make them sing and dance for them so that's deeply deeply disturbing and in their memoirs the girls recounted being molested by their father (gasps) and beaten by their mother and amy lee started Uh... to get the worst of it and because of the stress and the shame she had more seizures so her other four sisters would step in and take their father's advances so that she would be spared i don't even know what to say that is beyond it's devastating the girls went to the parish priest to say that this was happening to them and the priest's response was i'm good friends with your father just wear thicker coats when you're alone with him and they didn't do anything about it this is why we need feminism to make it worse So when the girls were still, like, four years old, five years old, two nurses quit abruptly. And the nurses always maintained that they quit because Dr. Defoe was molesting the girls. So this this was never proven. Dr. Defoe died um, before the girls came out about the sexual abuse with their father. But the two nurses that left maintained that this happened and that this was the reason for their quitting along with being bullied into being silent about it. Oh my god. Marie shared an amniotic sac with Emily, and so she was her mirror twin. Marie was reportedly never the same after her sister's death. She died in 1970, alone and left undiscovered for days until her sisters sent a doctor to check on her. She had apparently died of a stroke at age 35. What? Or at least this is what her estranged husband told the press. Many speculate that it was either a suicide or because of alcoholism attributed to her traumatic early life. So, again, absolutely devastating. 
The third sister to pass away died in 2001 of cancer. There are two living Dion sisters, Cecile and Annette. I just can't wrap my head around how their whole lives they were portrayed as these like miracle babies. And yet from day one, their lives have actually just been tragedy and misery. It's heartbreaking. In their later years, Annette, Cecile, and Yvonne, with the help of Cecile's son Bertrand, campaigned for an investigation into the management of their trust fund, and they were eventually awarded around $700,000 each by the Ontario government. So, a win, sort of. I mean, it really makes up for nothing. Cecile's son Bertrand was an instrumental force in this as he conducted the archival research necessary to procure evidence of mismanaged funds on behalf of Oliva and Elzir, Dr. Defoe, and the Ontario government. Once the funds were given to the girls, who, I mean, obviously they're women at this point, after they were given their funds, Bertrand bought a house for Cecile with his share of the money. But a few years later, he sold the house for a large profit and he put his mother in a high-end senior facility. He had control over her money and would send her monthly allowances and pay for the home. And then one day, the payments stopped. The bank account went dry, and Cecile's son, Bertrand, disappeared. Ah. Cecile hasn't seen her son since 2012. Oh my gosh. How can this story keep getting worse? I literally don't understand. Nobody, nobody except for their sisters ever showed up for these girls. They can only ever trust each other, and now there's only two of them left. I... I don't know how you could ever get over the betrayal of your son doing that to you, especially after... They've been betrayed by absolutely every single person in their lives apart from each other. And you'd think your own son would be on your side, and then he goes around and just steals all your money for the same reason that literally everybody else in your life has done that. It's so, so infuriating. And it, this there, there's a quote from Cecile that I want to say because I think it sums up not only their early lives which a lot of people focus on but it sums them up until later times because when they were teenagers the media was still obsessed with them there was a newspaper once that published their weights and measurements and said that it was disappointing to see that they hadn't grown up to be more beautiful Uh, when they were 16 you're just gonna have to edit over me just screaming into the mic throughout this entire episode (laughs) oh it's like, I, I just get so mad. This, I don't think I've ever listened about, like, I've never heard anything more infuriating in my life. It never stopped. And even when they were older, people kind of still treated them so differently. Like, they had husbands who treated them poorly. They had messy divorces. They had reporters still hounding them decades and decades after And one thing that Cecile said that I think sums up their entire lives really well is, we were the children that everybody looked at, but nobody saw. When all is said and done, we must ask ourselves certain questions. Is this a story of the Canadian government stealing children to profit off of them and demonizing their parents for being French Catholics? Is this a story of zealous, fame-hungry doctors leveraging the sensationalization of five young girls in his care? 
Is this the story of nurses and medical professionals who saw something unique and unprecedented and did what they believed was in the best interest of the girls that in some way they loved? It is all of this and more. It is the story of a family torn apart and unable to fit back together, of a nine-year physical distance and a lifelong emotional distance. In their biography, Annette, Cecile, and Yvonne talk about their father molesting them, their mother beating them, and their siblings treating them like slaves. They say they were devastated when Dr. Defoe died, when they were nine and a half years old, because they knew then that they would never be able to go home. Yet, this man kept them from their family, and the first time they saw their parents was through a glass window. This is a story of no singular villain, but a complex layering of villainy. We can speculate that their family life may have been happy had they been left with their parents. We can speculate that without the Defoe Hospital and nursery, they may not have survived infancy. We can speculate all we want, but what matters is straight from the mouths of the surviving Dion quintuplets. We sincerely hope a lesson will be learned from examining how our lives were forever altered by our childhood experience. If this letter changes the course of events for these newborns, then perhaps our lives will have served a higher purpose. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. There are many resources out there if you'd like to continue learning about the Dion quintuplets. The sisters produced two autobiographies, Family Secrets in 1995 and We Were Five in 1965. In 2019, the Quintland Sisters, a novelization of their early lives from the perspective of a nurse at the Defoe Nursery by Shelley Wood was published. That same year, a thorough biography of the Dion Sisters, The Miracle and Tragedy of the Dion Quintuplets by Sarah Miller was also released. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at FemMacabre. Tune in later this week when we discuss more less than excellent doctors. And I'm using the term doctor very loosely here.